And for those remaining, if you are able, I ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food and of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are grateful that you are a God who are not silent, but a God who speaks, who reveals yourself, that we might know you, that we might understand who we are, that we might know things that we could never know if you hadn't told us. And so we pray now that as we turn our attention and seek to focus it upon what you have said to us, that you would attend unto us by your Spirit to help us to hear and to listen and to see the good news of Jesus with greater clarity. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're throwing a party. Um, hopefully everyone knows that. Thank you, Jeff, for that helpful reminder of the party we're throwing. Um, I wanted to talk about this morning, why are we doing this? I think it's helpful for us to have clarity ourselves. Why are we doing this? What? Why are we spending money? Why are we spending, maybe not countless, but many staff hours? Why are we 
using congregational energy and time and resources. Why are we doing this? This has been something kind of in the works for about a year, um, and I've had the opportunity to talk to, you know, various people about it and share about it in different gatherings. And at, at one of these gatherings where I shared about it a little bit, um, another person in ministry came up to me afterward, and after kind of hearing about the gist of the idea, uh, said, "Yeah, I think the attraction model can still work." And I have to tell you that it really bothered me, that statement. That idea, the attraction model, as if we've chosen an event where we're really just trying to attract people to come and then convince them to join. Like maybe later this year we will realize, and I know nothing about Star Wars, but we'll realize that Star Wars is coming out with a new movie, maybe they are, and it's really popular, and so we're going to do a sermon series, Star Wars themed, because we have embraced an attraction model. Let me be clear, we love when people visit our church, we love when people come to know Jesus for the first time, we love when people who know Jesus decide to put their roots here and follow Jesus together in this body but an attraction model, to me, completely misses the point of what we're doing tonight. The party that we're throwing tonight, the thing that we are doing tonight, we are doing because this is what our God is like. And for those of us who claim to know God and believe and follow Jesus, our, our calling is to reflect what God is like to the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to embody in your life and in your being what God is like to the world. This is about who we are and whose we are. Parents sometimes say that sort of thing to their kids. Um, I know this past week my kids went to school. Uh, you know, we started school on Friday, and so before they went to school, I said something to them like, remember who you are and whose you are. As kids move from elementary school to, you know, middle school, high school, and then some, you know, go on to college, and they're in these spaces where mom and dad aren't there anymore, you know, it's important for them to remember who they are and to whom they belong. And, and in our family, I, I hope that being an Owens means something as they go out into the world. This morning, I want us to think about the story of the Bible, the Christian story, the Bible story, as we think about what, who our God is and what it means to belong to Him and reflect that into the world. I wouldn't assume that everyone here this morning or everyone listening is a Christian, but many of us are, and like children, sometimes we forget who we are and whose we are. We forget our story, and then we end up living in ways in the world that does not reflect the God to whom we claim to belong. And so I want us to consider God's story given to us in the Bible so that from this story we might leave today with a much deeper and better answer to the question, why would a church throw a block party? So I want to start in Genesis. We're going to start right at the beginning in the first chapter of the Bible, and then we're going to see how this connects to this passage that was just read in Isaiah, and then how this points us to Jesus. I would say the story of the Bible, we could say, is a story of feasts. A feast in the beginning, 
a feast in salvation and a feast at the end. In the beginning, a feast. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that, but Genesis opens with God who fashions this world and brings order and fruitfulness to creation. God makes a beautiful, good world, and God makes us human beings to reflect what God is like to the world. And this God abounds in generosity and goodness. And he says to humanity, Genesis 1.29, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. My grandfather was a, was a gardener. I've mentioned him before. And one of the most delicious things that I ever remember eating, it was summertime. I was out in his huge yard, and there was a peach tree and I pulled a peach right off the tree, ripe, ready to eat, warmed by the summer's sun. Creation is a million times better than that. God says, look, look at what I have given you. Look at what I have made. It's a feast. Enjoy. God said, all these plants, every tree for food, except one. There's one tree that you are not to eat of. It is the tree that will be this ongoing reminder that you do not exist independent of me, but you are dependent on me for your very being. One tree's fruit that reminds you you are not self-sufficient, but you are a creature who relies upon God. Of course, we know the story. We, we turned. We ate from the one tree. Humanity turned away, sought independence. We decided to trust ourselves, what seemed right to us, rather than listen to God. And from that broken relationship with God, death comes into the world. And from that point on, death would reign. No matter what good things human beings might make or cultivate, death would reign. Physical death, our lives end relational death, violence and oppression and brokenness and destructive relationships, spiritual death, dead toward God, and sometimes almost irrationally trying to make life work without reference to God or His love or listening to Him. And we see that this turn from God, it, it, it affects individuals, it affects families and communities and society and the whole world. And if you keep reading through Genesis and the books that follow, you see that death and brokenness affects everyone. It affects even God's own people who were supposed to be the instrument through whom God would bring the nations to know Him again. And this is where we come into the book of Isaiah because Isaiah tells us that the world and God's own people are sick with sin, that humanity has failed to be who we're meant to be. And instead of doing what is good, there is injustice and there is oppression and there is brokenness in the world and in God's own people too. And so God is going to judge the world and He's going to judge His people, but then He's going to bring about salvation and He's going to draw people to Himself and if you were to read the chapters around Isaiah 25, chapter 24, and, and the few chapters before that, what you would see is there are these two distinct cities that Isaiah talks about with two very different ways of being and two different kinds of feasts or parties. There is the earthly city, and then there is the city of God, Mount Zion. 
The earthly city, its way of life, its culture, it, it, it is a way of being that tries to make life work without God. It is a city that the, the distinctive feature is to live life without reference to God. And it is this way of life that centers on humanity, not upon God, that glories in humanity, not God, that seeks meaning and purpose in humanity, not God, and seeks to control life rather than trust and rely on God. And it is a way of life that is not true. The Scriptures say, in Him we live and move and have our being. God sustains our lives. We are dependent on Him every moment. It is not true, but it is also not good because it leads toward violence, control, oppression, and every injustice. And Isaiah has been saying, this is not only happening in the nations, it's happening in God's own people as well. This earthly city also feasts and they party, but it is a kind of feasting and partying that is ultimately about distraction from what is coming. It's about not thinking about the end. It's escapist. It seeks to numb and dull. It is a feasting and partying that says, let's not think about the end. Let's not think about death and what death reveals about our state Let's just try to have as much fun as we can. Let's just try to have as good of a time as possible. Let's just seek pleasure. I referenced this earlier this summer uh, when we were looking at Psalm 90. But, but again, listen to these words from Ernest Becker, cultural anthropologist, winner of the 1974 Pulitzer Prize for his book, Denial of Death, where he writes this. Everything that man does in his symbolic world is an attempt to deny and overcome his grotesque fate. He literally drives himself into a blind obliviousness with social games, psychological tricks, personal preoccupations so far removed from the reality of his situation that they are forms of madness, agreed madness, shared madness, disguised and dignified madness, but madness all the same. And a few thousand years before Becker said that, Isaiah said something very similar as he looked into this earthly city, this way of being, this way of feasting and partying. And Isaiah says, death and the judgment that death is, it reveals something. It exposes and reveals the reality of our situation, and it makes us face what we've been trying to escape and numb ourselves from, Death reveals that the human project of seeking life apart from God won't work. Death lays bare all the ways of living and entertaining ourselves and numbing ourselves and partying and feasting to escape the truth that we will have to face. And the crazy part of what Isaiah is saying to us, especially as we turn into chapter 25, is that while these thoughts are incredibly unpleasant and most of us don't want to think about them, Isaiah says that when God judges this city, when He exposes this lie, it is for gracious purposes. It is to draw people to Himself. Isaiah 25 is about salvation on the other side of judgment, salvation for all that would turn and come to God. Isaiah 
looks into the future and he sees what God is going to do. He sees that God is going to bring about this great salvation and that there's going to be mercy and there's going to be grace for all who would come and turn to God. Look at the text that, that was read for us. If you have it open, that would be helpful. Verse 1. Isaiah begins praising God, using God's personal name, Yahweh, in the midst of a world that Isaiah lived in where there were so many so-called gods. Isaiah says, Yahweh, you are my God. I delight in you. I praise you. I love you for who you are. What you do is amazing. The things you sovereignly planned from long ago. Yahweh, I praise you, verse 2, that you judged the earthly city. You exposed its lie. You judged its violence and oppression. You showed your strength and your power. You established yourself as the real true king. But even here, your intentions were merciful. Verse 3, these people of strength and cities of ruthless nations, they have turned to you. They glorify you. They fear you. You brought them low that you might bring them in. And God is praised, verses 4 and 5, because of His strength shown by helping the poor and the vulnerable and the needy, protecting, shading, sustaining. Verse 6, on this mountain, God's city Yahweh, the king of the armies, what is he going to do? The eternal king, the king of kings, the ruler to whom all owe allegiance, what is he going to do? He's going to make a feast. He's going to host a party. And who's coming? Who are the guests? For who? The text tells us, verse 6 and 7, all peoples, all nations. And if you've been following Isaiah up to this point, there's only one way to make sense of this. Everyone is judged. Everyone is exposed. Chapter 24, Israel as well as the nations who tried to live without God. Who's coming to this party? It's those who have been humbled. It's those who have seen that they were in the wrong. It's those who repent and turn. Not just Israel, but the nations, enemy nations. I mean, if you read back in this, there are, these may, nations may not mean a lot to you, but Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, that's kind of the big three. Those are the big three evil nations. They come, they become a part of this. Those who turn, they come to God's feast. They come to receive rich food, the best cuts of meat, the choicest of wines. You see, in Isaiah's day, in the ancient Near Eastern world, kings would often throw big parties when they were inaugurated as a ruler, and, and, they would, and these feasts would show the kind of king that they were going to be. It was a foretaste of their kingdom. And this is what Yahweh will do, Isaiah says, not just for Israel who has turned back, but for the nations who will come. And here's the centerpiece of his kingdom, of Yahweh's rule. Yahweh, Israel's God, is going to give the gift that no other king and no other kingdom can give. He's going to destroy death and remove all of its sadness. And this is why this feast 
is going to be the greatest feast that there ever was or ever will be because it will be a feast of life and fullness of life, life as it was meant to be. Isaiah pictures death in verse 6 as this, this covering, this veil that's over all peoples. It's like this dark shadow hovering over our lives, which is why Ernest Becker, I would say, says our lives are filled with things to distract us from it. Death is this shadow over our relationships and everyone we love because in the end, we lose. Death is a shadow over our work and our striving and our accomplishment because in the end, it's not going to be remembered, it won't last, and it will be brought to nothing. What the earthly party could only numb and escape and distract from, God's party actually celebrates that it's been dealt with. Here at the feast at Mount Zion, here is a feast that doesn't distract but celebrates that God has dealt with our deepest need. We will feast and He will swallow up death. And because God is going to swallow up this covering, this veil, this dark shadow, This mountain is a place of healing and redemption and restoration. This salvation not only welcomes and brings in nations and peoples, but God cares for each individual. You get this image of God wiping away the tears from each face, comforting and healing the sadness. Isaiah looks into the future and says, God is going to throw a feast. He's going to conquer death. He's going to heal all sadness. And he's going to graciously welcome all who would come to him. And as you turn to the New Testament, you come to this person, Jesus. Jesus who claims and demonstrates that he somehow is Yahweh come in person into our world. And Jesus says that he has come to bring God's kingdom. And as he goes about proclaiming this kingdom, do you know what he does? He feasts and he parties and he invites sinners, those who are broken and far from God. He invites them to come and turn and repent and he shares a meal and a table with them. And he not only feasts, but he tells stories about his kingdom, stories of feasts and parties. And on the night before he dies, he has a meal with his disciples, and he gives them bread and wine, and he says, this is my body and my blood given for you. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and he suffers, and he dies. And Isaiah would say to us, look at what is happening to Jesus on the cross. And what you are seeing there is God swallowing up death. Jesus dies and he rises again and he swallows up death, defeating death, taking the penalty of death to himself that in him and through him he would die our death and give us the victory. He swallows up death that we might feast on the rich salvation and welcome of God through him. This rich salvation that Jesus says when he returns is going to be like a marriage celebration where he is going to host us and he is going to serve us and we are going to rejoice in him.
we will say in the words of Isaiah 25, 9, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. This is what our God graciously gives. A feast in creation. A feast in salvation. A feast at the end. This is what God is like. There's a pastor um, in our denomination the denomination that this church is a part of, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, This pastor's name is Russ Whitfield. Russ is at a church in D.C. out on, uh, and when I was out on the East Coast, I had the occasion a few times to to get to know Russ. Um, I couldn't possibly explain Russ to you if you've never met him, Uh, but let me just say this. It's pretty much impossible not to like Russ Whitfield. Um, A few years ago, his church, Grace Mosaic in Washington, D.C., they started hosting monthly parties at the local jazz club. The church provided food and music, and they invited the neighborhood to come out. And Russ wrote a little article about um, this experience and doing this. And in the article, he describes an interaction with one of the neighbors who attended the party. So Russ, after he was up singing with the band, he has a really good voice, by the way. After singing with the band, he comes down off the stage and a man approaches him and says, let me get this straight. This is a church throwing this party? And Russ says, yeah, we're right here in the neighborhood. And the man asks in disbelief, and you're the pastor? (laughs) Guilty as charged, Russ responded. The man paused for a moment, and then he asked, so you're doing this as a recruitment for the church, right? To which Russ responded, well, let me put it to you like this. If we never see a single person come through the doors of our church, because of these parties, we're still going to throw these parties because we believe that God has welcomed us, and so we welcome others. The man thought about that for a minute and then asked, how much do I owe you? Not a thing, said Russ. Sharing in the joy of God and our neighbors is our reward. In the article, Russ then goes on to write this. The brief conversation that I had with my neighbor on that Friday night was revealing. He wasn't surprised that people in the city were throwing a neighborhood party. He was confounded by the idea that a church was throwing a party with no strings attached. How could it be that a church, a body so identified with exclusion in popular American discourse, was now welcoming him to enjoy extravagance. I think this was the mystery underlying his line of inquiry on that Friday night. Evidently, the last place he expected to experience love and goodness and beauty, the last place he expected to find joy and connection, the last place he expected to experience hospitality was at the hand of the church. He expected a church that would act in self-interest maintaining a quid pro quo relationship to the neighborhood, 
in which events were exchanged for membership or tithes, what he encountered was a self-giving church committed to maintaining a sola gratia relationship to the neighborhood, meaning a grace alone relationship. On that night, this man's settled belief about the church was beautifully disrupted by hospitality. His expectations of the church came into dissonance with his experience of the church as he enjoyed a taste of the life to come. I think that deep down is why I was so bothered by that comment from my friend and probably well-meaning ministry worker when I mentioned that we were doing this party and the use of that phrase, attraction model. I really don't want any of us here, and I don't want anyone coming to this party tonight to think that our motives are mercenary or out of self-interest. In a society that less and less values the church and even understands the church, in a society when many have been hurt by the church, we who claim Jesus need to learn who we are and grow into who we are, that we might be a people who reflect what God is like to the world. That's why we're throwing a party. Because the God who made us gave a feast in creation and a feast in salvation, and he's going to give a feast at the end. The God of feasts and parties, of connection, of love, of gracious welcome, may we who have tasted of his goodness and his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his welcome extend that to others. Amen. God speaks to us in his word and he reminds us of who he is, who we are, what it means to follow him. And then we turn and we have this opportunity to pray, to speak back to God where we confess our sins, where we acknowledge the places where we are not reflecting him in our lives, in our relationships. And he welcomes us to come in honesty and humility and promises grace and mercy and forgiveness to us in and through Jesus. And so let's do that now. Let's spend a few moments in private confession and prayer, and then I'll lead us in a moment's time.